Wow, with a compliment like that from Lewis, it makes it hard to figure out where to start. I tell you. <clears throat> no, it's a, it's a real big deal for him to win. Um, he's rightly proud. It's obviously not the first time we've played on a Sunday, but it's the first time he's ever told you about it, which tells you volumes. Um, his prayer life is really growing. If you need a lesson, um, we've got copies back there. And so raise your hand and, uh, is that Lily or a flag? It's Lily and Alan, and they're glad to come down and give you a copy of a lesson. Um, we're studying church history uh, in this class. We're trying not to do it apart from the Bible uh, to make it a Bible study class. Uh, today is a little bit more difficult to do in some ways because today is some sort of ground foundation knowledge that's going to be important for us as the classes unfold. I'm really excited. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the Council of Nicaea in 325, which laid out some very clear statements about who Jesus uh, uh, is as the Son of God. And, and there was a lot of controversy that was ironed out at this, one of the great, quote, ecumenical councils, it's called. Um, but also in the process of dealing with Constantine, we're going to take a pause and for one Sunday, I expect, deal with uh, architecture, church architecture in particular, because with Constantine, we saw a shift in the architecture of how churches were built, how the, not church in the, in the biblical sense of God's people, but the edifice sense of a building. And uh, uh, those of you uh, particularly who have uh, uh, experience in other denominations beyond a, a, a 21st century evangelical church, uh, Catholic backgrounds and others, will we'll hopefully find some of that illuminating as we see some of the features of some of the, the church buildings why they were constructed the way they were, and, and how all of that came to be. But this morning, we're going to be laying some groundwork for that. And to do that, we're going to talk about Constantine. Constantine the Great. Anybody ever heard of him? <clears throat> a lot of you have. Lord John Norwich wrote a, a two-volume set on Byzantium. Um, he's a guy uh, over in England who writes histories... Um, uh, kind of like a Mitch, Michener equivalent over there. Uh, he wrote a big thing on Venice and some other stuff. Uh, uh, but his, his work on Byzantium is very interesting because he talks about Constantine in it. And he says the following, No ruler in all of history has ever more fully merited his title of the great than Constantine. It means he's ranking him over Alexander the Great. He's ranking him over any number of, of the greats in history. He goes on to say that Constantine is the fourth most influential man in human history behind Jesus Christ, behind the Buddha, behind Muhammad. The fourth most influential man in history. Now, I'm not sure all historians would agree with him. In fact, I'm sure a lot don't. But that Constantine was a super influential man is without a doubt true. Um, history is, is interesting how it lays out. And <clears throat> I had a, an opportunity Friday. Uh, uh, those of you who follow news and stuff know that uh, uh, Ken Lay and uh, um, Jeff Skilling were found guilty on, I guess, Thursday morning. Uh, that jury came back. Who, anybody, yourself or families, worked for Enron? 
Okay, we've got a number of folks. Anybody who, who felt personally hurt by the fall of Enron? A lot of people. Um, <clears throat> one of the key people involved in that was Sherry Watkins. Sherry was the kind of the whistleblower, okay, who went into Ken Lay a couple of years earlier and said, uh, we've got bad accounting practices. And uh, it's her testimony that she was dismissed by Ken Lay and, and he uh, did not have any regard for what she had to say. And um, uh, she's one of the people responsible for the whole Enron uh, 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 mess unfolding as it did in court at least. Um, I got asked uh, uh, to go up and be on a, a show that's filmed on Fridays and shown on the weekends by Maria Bartiromo, who does this Wall Street wrap-up on CNBC. And so I went up Friday to do that in New York, and on the way I'm reading all the newspapers and everything I can so that I try to sound intelligent, if possible, and <clears throat> in the process I was struck by Ken Lay's response to the verdict. He was totally unprepared, I believe, for the verdict. Um, uh, and he stood there with uh, his minister and some others in a circle of prayer while his uh, family and, and friends uh, did what they needed to do to be able to post bond for him. And uh, uh, his response was that, that Romans 8:28, God works all things out to the good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And he said, you know, this just means that God's got another phase planned right now, but he still believed he was innocent and he thinks that ultimately he will be shown that way through the appellate courts or whatever. And I, I, I thought, isn't that this is uh, this is very interesting, you know, and if you just read what Kinley has to say, it looks like uh, a great man of faith who has great confidence in God and in our system and will be vindicated. I get up to CNBC headquarters and um, lo and behold, I'm not the only guest on the show. They've got Sharon Watkins on the show as well. And so I, I meet her in uh, uh, makeup. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the, uh, not that I needed it. That was for her. Um, I'm a man. And uh, they may have accidentally dusted me with something, but I didn't need it. I feel confident. Um, and I asked her before we went on the air, I said, so uh, tell me what your thoughts are, because I wanted to know. And she said, boy, God is good. And I said, interesting. She says, yes, I'm a woman of faith. And I've been, been praying for this. And, and, you know, and, and, and I said, interesting, because Ken Lay's been praying for this too. And, he's been, and, and she, was, she was very interesting reaction. And, and, and so then the CNBC people come in. And, and I know those folks some, but I, they may be pagans. I don't know them to be people of faith. And they're sitting there listening to a bunch of us Houston uh, religious people talking about our, our faith. And, and they're intrigued by it because their view is, is, gee, this is like a baseball game where both sides pray to win. And you wonder where God comes down and God lands. And you listen to Sharon Watkins talk and it's that, that God is vindicated and the system's vindicated because her prayers were answered. You listen to Ken Lay talk and his prayers haven't been answered yet, but it's just a matter of faith and time before they do get answered, which would mean that hers would not be and I sat there and I just watched this like a ping pong ball going back and forth in my brain between them. And I thought, you know, what, where, where do we land on this? Where is God? 
You know, what, what is this about? And, and then in the midst of all of that, I'm working on this class. And I think history is very important in, in specifically Christian points right now, right here. Because I want to ask you this question as we go through this. It's the same question I'd ask about Ken Lay and Sharon Watkins and about me. And it's the question I'll ask about you. And that is, where really do we stand with God? Where is our faith a matter of convenience and necessity? And where is our faith really a relationship with the creator of the universe who we bow before? Constantine the Great may have been the fourth most influential man in human history. I don't know. But as we go through here, one of my questions is, did he know God? And that's a question historians have really been pumping. So we're going to need to get a little bit of background. I'm going to go through some of it hurriedly. But I want to start by telling you the two reasons Norwich says that uh, uh, Constantine the Great was the fourth most influential man. Number one, it was Constantine the Great who moved the capital of the Roman Empire to Byzantium, it was called. He gave it the name New Rome, but everybody would have no countenance with that and, and called it Constantinople. We know it as Istanbul. Istanbul is, is a, a, an Arabic version of Constantinople, their Arabic equivalent of Constantinople. But among English speakers through the 1930s, it was still Constantinople. Even in the 1960s, Constantinople would be found on English maps. Now it's pretty much Istanbul. But it was Constantine who took a small little village and turned it into this great town city of the world. It's also Constantine that made Christianity the state religion for Rome. Okay? Now, how did he get there? We've been covering church history, but we're going to take a step back and we're going to get caught up with Roman history for a minute. Okay? So we're going to be Roman around uh, for just a moment. <clears throat> I think the best way to get the running start, to put everything into context, is to start with the Julian line. The Julian line of emperors. Rome used to be ruled by a senate originally in its inception. It was a senate that ruled it. And then all of a sudden there was a, a Pompeii and kind of a civil war. And, and, and folks were trying to become a king but not use the term king. So they wanted a dictator of Rome, or people wanted to be the dictator of Rome. And the first real guy who almost won the Civil War, that almost, well, really probably is the first emperor of Rome, was Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar. And uh, this would have been in the 50s and 40s before Christ. Okay, But Julius Caesar has a problem. Uh, uh, he's a bit too much of a populist. He's willing to give money away and he's looking out for the good and the Senate doesn't like it because he's too popular and he is becoming uh, too much of a hero in the eyes of the people. So a guy named uh, Brute does his etude on the back uh, uh, and uh, kills him. He is assassinated. And the next Caesar, who is a, 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 a relative of sorts, a grandnephew, actually, who had been adopted by Julius Caesar, is Caesar Augustus. His real name is Octavius, okay? But Augustus means revered one in Latin. So he takes the title of Augustus. We know him in the Bible because in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
See, Augustus reigned from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D., a long reign of 44 to 45 years. And it was his decree or his census that sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for the census where the birth of Christ took place. We take from him, after he died, uh, uh, his uh, successor was Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius reigned from 14 to 37, which would have included the ministry of Christ, right? The ministry of Christ, whose ministry started before the ministry of Christ? John the Baptist. So we read in Luke 3, 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, he, John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of, sin, of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 3, 1. So that's within the time frame here. Tiberius Caesar uh, ends his reign. Caligula is the next emperor. We don't read about Caligula in the Bible itself. Uh, after Caligula, we have Claudius Caesar. Claudius we read about in the Bible. This is during Paul's active ministry in his mission trips that Claudius is Caesar. Uh, for example, in Acts 18.2, one of several places that Claudius is mentioned, there... Paul met a Jew named Aquila, who'd recently, there being Corinth, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay? That was Claudius. We have the same entry from secular historians that Claudius uh, kicked out the Jews because of a dispute between, and a fuss between the Jews over Crestus, Christ. Okay? So in time frame, this is uh, where we are with Claudius Caesar. Now, after Claudius is Nero. It's under Nero that Paul made his defense. We don't read that in Scripture, but we know historically that would have been true. Nero is also the emperor when Rome burns down, or a, a third of Rome burns down in 64 AD, and Nero blames the Christians. Great persecutions under Nero. Peter and Paul both lose their life. Uh, under him. Now, when Nero dies, Nero was no big hit with the people and they didn't like him. And oh, in 68 to 69 AD, there were four different guys that became the Roman emperor as they fought to see who was going to get it. There's a guy named Vespasian, meanwhile, who's a general over in Judea because the Jews are having their uprising that we've talked about in this class, right, with Masada. So Vespasian's over there. He's trying to put down the uprising. He finds out that it's a free-for-all to see who is going to be the next Roman emperor. So he heads back to Rome, claims it for himself, and starts what's called the Flavian line. Vespasian rules for 10 years. When he's done, his son Titus rules from 79 to 81. When Titus is done, Domitian rules from 81 to 96. This is the time when John wrote the Revelation. Domitian, there was a lot of persecution of the church. And so scripture, the last parts of our New Testament and our scripture are written during this time period of Domitian. When Domitian dies, we enter what Romans would call their golden age. It's during this time that Rome really expands as an empire. Because what they do is the first thing, the Roman Senate tries to take over the government itself. Shock, shock. And so they, they appoint for the first time a non-military general to be the emperor. This old fella named Nerva. It took a lot of Nerva to do it too because he didn't have any military force behind him. But he was a smart old guy because you know what he did? He took one of the most powerful generals who had one of the biggest armies and said, I'm going to adopt you as my son. So now you're my boy. 
I've always wanted a son, especially one that's 45 that has a great army. I'm an old guy. Just have mercy on pops. I won't be around long. And when I'm dead, look what you get. And he groomed his son to be his successor. The son, the emperor Trajan. The son, the emperor Trajan. Under Trajan, there are several martyrdoms that we've already read about. Uh, Ignatius and others. Trajan becomes the emperor and Trajan says, you know, I never knew dad until the last couple years of his life, but he was a really smart guy. I think I'll do the same thing. Trajan, later on in his life, adopts his own son, who's a grown-up fella, who's already turned out pretty well, and says, you'll be my successor. And so Hadrian takes over when Trajan dies. Hadrian goes up to England and, and builds Hadrian's wall because there's problems with the Scots coming in, reestablishes borders. Rome's expanding. It's reaching its peak. Hadrian says, hey, let's do it like granddad, picks his successor out, adopts Antoninus Pius as his. And Pius is uh, another guy that the Christians are having a lot of trouble with. Persecutions come and go. It's not where persecutions are every day, but there'll be a time of persecution and a time of persecution. There was a time of persecution under Antoninus Pius, and then after him, Marcus Aurelius, <clears throat> a blemish on the name Mark. Um, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius uh, uh, is um, a philosopher, he's an emperor. He goes out and he wages wars, but he brings back the plague. We don't know that it's the bubonic plague, but some plague, and a million people die in the Roman Empire. Now, they only have about 60 million at the time. That's the population of the world, the known world to them. So one out of 60 people die from this. And when that happens, it wreaks havoc on the economy and on the government. And so we've got economic problems starting, governmental problems, and if that's not enough... Marcus Aurelius decides, why adopt a son? I got a boy. Let my boy inherit. I, my genetic material must be so great that it probably needs to be on the throne for some time. So when he passes on, his son Commodus takes over. Commodus is a loser of an emperor. Okay? He's not doing anything to help at all the problems. The problems are getting worse. When Commodus dies, uh, and by the way, he was assassinated because he wasn't doing so hot. The Severian emperors reign for the next 38 or 42 years. There's a, uh, a bunch of them that come and go. They're not helping the economic problems any. And then there are what are called the Barrack emperors, 25 of them for this 50-year period. They're just coming and going and coming and going. It's whoever's running the army at the time claims to be emperors. There is a spiraling down of the Roman Empire at this point. Economic problems are huge. Nobody's paying attention to government. Nobody likes government. Everybody's jockeying for position. Nothing's working. Enter Diocletian in 284. A smart guy. A smart guy. Diocletian comes in and he starts addressing problems. Now I want to show you two problems that he's got. First one. Money, out-of-control inflation. Now, we, we think, first of all, most of us are too young to remember out-of-control inflation. We had some in this country. Okay? They had it going for a long time. Now, we got inflation with gas prices. Chaps my lips. I mean, I'm not a fan of paying three bucks a gallon in gas. 
But it wasn't just gas, it's all areas. The inflation is skyrocketing and no one seems to be able to get it under control. Not only that, the military's overextended because the military got smaller from all of the deaths of the plague. A lot of those that died were soldiers that brought it back and the military's overextended. It's fighting the Germans, it's fighting the Scots up in England, it's fighting the Persians who want to take over. So you've got, you've got a horribly overextended military and you've got massive bureaucracy. The government's just grown real big as everybody's tried to pad their own uh, 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 pockets. You've got very deep class divisions because somehow the rich people have figured out not how, how to not pay taxes and make the poor people pay the taxes. Okay, now if any of this sounds remotely familiar to our country, <laughs> I assure you it's... Well, at least we don't have out-of-control inflation yet. Um, <laughs> um, the, but these are serious problems that Diocletian's got. And last but not least, the second area of the church. Because you see, even though the church has been illegal for much of its existence, it's gotten pretty wealthy. See, when people would die, they'd give their belongings to the church. They'd give their property. They'd give their money. And, and the church has grown not only in wealth, but the church has a pretty good uh, governmental system going here. And they're all kind of coordinated and working pretty good together. And what's more, the church is being kind and feeding the widows and the orphans and the poor people. 1,500 are being fed daily in Rome by the church out of the church's money. Government doesn't feed people. Government doesn't have welfare. Government doesn't have Social Security. There's not Medicaid. There's not Medicare. And so the people are growing. And at this point in time, the church may make up 10% of the population. And these are real hardcore believers by and large. And so this is what Diocletian's got to deal with. So what does Diocletian do? Well, first thing he does is he reorganizes the empire. And then the second thing he does is he says, I'm going to deal with the church. Now, this is a complicated map, but I couldn't figure out how to break it down on PowerPoint. So I want you to just work with me at understanding it. This is the Roman Empire at the time. It goes all the way up into England. It's got Spain and Portugal. It's got France, a good bit of Germany. It's got Italy. It's got a good bit of Greece. It's the orange and the green. It's got Macedonia, Yugoslavia. Comes over here, picks up Turkey, Lebanon, Syria... Uh, uh, Israel, Egypt, all the way over here to Tunis and Morocco in North Africa. It's a pretty big thing. And so Diocletian comes in, he says, we're going to divide this up into four areas. First of all, I'm going to reign over here in Nicomedia. And uh, I'm the big emperor. Anybody have any problems with that? I'll kill you. Okay? But I'm going to draw a line here, and I'm going to divide. See, they didn't have fax machines. The airplanes, airlines were totally unreliable. It was hard to get around. And so he says the telephones, they broke all the time. He says to run this thing, being as big as it is, I'm going to draw a line here, and my best friend, Maximian, a really good guy, I'm going to make co-emperor. And Maximian can run the western side, and I'm going to run the eastern side. And that's the way he set it up. Now, to take care of this problem of who's following next, we're going to get two junior Caesars. 
That's not a small salad. That's two, uh, 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 two junior Caesars. We're going to get this guy named Galerius, and I'm going to let him just rule a couple of little places right around there. Keep him close to me so I can keep an eye on him. And then there's this guy named Constantius. I'm going to stick him up there near England and make him handle England and northern France and all the rest. Oh, Constantius is kind of far away. So you know what I'm going to do to make sure he stays faithful? I'm going to give his son a job with me. So if Constantius does anything wrong, his young boy Constantine will be dead. Okay? Smart guy. So that's what he does. He sets it up and he says what's going to happen is when Diocletian, when me and Maximian hang it up, these two fellows, Constantius and Galerius, will become the next two big emperors. And then they can designate two more little junior Caesars. And this is the new way we're going to run it. Now, as for the church, he says, i got to deal with the church. First thing I'm going to do is it's like a, a creature. We're just going to lop off the head and figure if we take off the head, the whole creature will die. So we'll do that with three points. First, we're going to arrest every bishop we can. If we can't get the bishops to recant, we'll just kill them or we'll just uh, send them off to an island and, and let them be the next episode of Lost. Um, so... That's the first thing he's going to do. He's going to arrest the bishops. Second thing he's going to do is destroy all the church buildings. Let's just rip them up and destroy them. Then they won't have a place to meet. Oh, one third thing. Let's burn all their scriptures and their holy writings. And so this is the three-point plan that Diocletian puts into place. And when he does it, he, it does pretty good. He tells his four uh, or three cohorts, this is the new plan. Now, Constantius up there, he's thinking, look, man, I'm not into arresting bishops. What do these guys do to me? I'll burn a few churches maybe. I'll burn a few scriptures. But I'm just not into, like, killing the, the guys. Um, meanwhile, the, Constantius's son... Constantine is with Diocletian while Diocletian's doing this all over the place. I mean, he's seeing Diocletian kill the bishops. He's seeing them burn the churches. He's seeing them do all of this. Now, it reaches a point in about 305 where Diocletian says, you know, there's ought to be more to life. I think I'm tired of being an emperor. I'd like to be a farmer. There's a great delight, he says, in planting cabbage. Um... So, Diocletian decides to retire. Okay? Nobody's ever retired from being a Roman emperor before. This is the first. Usually you just go till you die or you get killed. Okay? He's going to retire. And he says to Maximian, hey, buddy, you need to retire too. Maximian says, I don't want to retire. He says, no, no, no. This is the way we need to do it. We're both going out together. So I'm going to retire. You're going to retire. And then what we'll do is... Galerius will become emperor in my place, and Constantius will become emperor in your place. And then all they got to do is we got to get two new junior Caesars. And then the plan is going on. And that was going to work out great, everybody thought, until a year later, Constantius died. And Constantius's army, by the way, he'd been joined by his son Constantine about a year earlier. Constantius's army made Constantine emperor. The young boy wowed the troops. So they make him emperor. Well, once everybody else finds out, Maximian never really wanted to retire anyway, and he had his boy over here as junior, senior, as junior Caesar. So he says, well, I'm going to rejoin my boy. I'm coming out of retirement. The emperor is back, baby, and I am going to teach that little snot-nosed kid a lesson. 
And so Constantine comes down and he brings his army and he starts marching toward Rome. He comes through the Alps and he comes down Italy and he's getting ready to have it out. And there's going to be a big battle in front of a bridge that crosses the Tiber River. It's called the, oh yeah, that's Constantine. It's called the Milvian Bridge. We're at 312. You can go see the bridge now. It's been, you know, rebuilt in some way since then, but it's the same basic bridge. The Milvian Bridge. And so Constantine is about to have the battle of the kingdom. And the day before, he's praying to the gods of his fathers. And there are two different accounts of this. One is written probably five years later. The other one is written about 20 years later by Eusebius, the church historian who was a buddy of Constantine's and who had first-hand rendition from Constantine. So you read it, you figure out which one you want. But somewhere in the midst of it, this is what the account said. Constantine is the day before battle praying to the gods of his father, most likely Apollos, the sun god. And he has a vision as he's looking up at the sun. And the vision is the cross. And that's Latin. In tonto nika, in this conquer, conquer in the cross. Eusebius says he also had a dream, and in the dream he was told to take the Greek key, which is an X. It's the CH part of Christ in the name Christ. The CH is one Greek letter, it's the key, CHI. Okay? So that's the X. And then put over it an R which is the Greek rho, R. Those are the first two letters, for us the first three, in Christ. It was the abbreviation of Christ. And so Constantine is told, you conquer in this. Con Constantine either awakens from the dream or finishes the vision and tells his soldiers to paint on their shields a cross. If not a cross, at least the chi rho. And battle is pitched. Constantine doesn't have as many men, but Constantine just beats the ever-loving tar out of them. Constantine goes into Rome. The Roman Senate says, uh, yeah, we were rooting for you all along. In fact, we're going to build you a big old arch. And they built the Arch of Constantine that you can go take pictures of if you're in Rome now. It's interesting. The arch doesn't say that Constantine conquered in the cross or in Christianity. What it does say, it doesn't say though that he conquered in Apollos. It's really ambiguous. It says by divine intervention he conquered. Okay? It's kind of fuzzy. Constantine, before he leaves, he uh, donates this big old palace. Uh, it's called the Lateran Palace now to the Pope, and that's where the Pope starts living and lives for the next several hundred years. Seven, six, till the move of the papistry to Avignon, France. Lateran Palace, and he builds a basilica right next to it, sets his people down to design it. The basilica, the Lateran Palace, by the way, was rebuilt, the facade and all, in the 1600s, 15, 1600s, so what you see is not the original. But next to it is the baptistry that he built, 
that's still there today. The outside shaping of it was changed about 50 years after he built it, maybe 100 years later. But you can go inside. Ultimately, this is where Constantine would get baptized right before he died. Uh, Constantine uh, donates this. And then Constantine goes up to Milan and meets with the other emperor who had the other half of the Roman kingdom. And they get together and Constantine basically says, unless you want me to whip you, you're going to sign this edict. And here's what it says. I, Constantine, grant both to the Christians and to all the free, uh, and to all, the free choice of following whatever form of worship they please. Not only does he do that, but he says all church property has to be given back to the church at no cost. Anybody who's taken it, anybody who's destroyed it, it goes back and he opens up the treasury. Now, the church is faced with a problem at this point um, because the church, now all of a sudden, it becomes really in vogue to become a Christian. And you got the support of the government. If you're a Christian, he says, you don't have to, to, to do your municipal service. He starts cutting the Christians all these breaks. You get like below prime loans. It becomes really in style. And while we like to think about all of the martyrs that had died for the faith, for every martyr, there were a whole bunch of people who recanted. Okay, and, 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 and there's part of me that just reacts and says, eh, I can't believe you wouldn't die for the faith. And yet there's part of me that says, you know, if I'm in Nazi Germany and I know what's happening to the Jews and I'm a Jew and someone doesn't know I'm a Jew and they say to me, are you a Jew? I'm not so sure I'd have said, yeah, I am. Can I get a train ride to Auschwitz? You know, I mean, you, you really wonder if push comes to shove what you would do. So then the church has got a question because now all of these people that had been, even some bishops who had recanted their faith, all of a sudden are coming back into the church. So the church is saying, gee, what do we do with these guys? You know, I mean... Did they have their finger? Uh, you know, yeah, I said I pledge an oath to Caesar, but I had King's X going on in my back the whole time. They never looked. Okay? You know, what, is, what does the church do? By the same token, it's all of a sudden, especially in government, did you know if you're a Christian under Constantine, you get more raises, and you get booted up the ladder, you want to go up, you go up with Christ. Um... I'm so thankful for people like Debbie Riddle. I'm so thankful for Judge Eccles. I'm so thankful for uh, 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 any number of folks uh, in our congregation and that I know outside our congregation who are good Christians in politics. But I gotta tell you, I know a bunch of people who put on the Christian coat because it helps them in politics when their convictions uh, don't really show outside of that. It's, it's been going on a long time. Um, Augustine does some other things. Uh, Augustine. Uh, Constantine does some other things. Now, some of them are very pagan. I mean, he's still having his coins minted with uh, Apollos on the coin. I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity about what he's doing. And, and is he just trying to take advantage of the Christian money and market and people and keep a kid? You know, they basically put a position where he was able to march against the eastern ruler and wipe him out, and Constantine became emperor of the entire Roman Empire. 
because he had the support of the Christians and the church, and, and, and it really eroded the, the other emperor's support. So there are a lot of questions about that and how it laid. I will tell you that he did a lot of things that have stayed with us today. Um, uh, some of them aren't with us now, but who knows what blue laws are or were? A lot of us. He enacted the first blue laws. He said, okay, uh, no more commerce on Sunday. Sunday is a day of, uh, of uh, rest. You're not allowed to do business unless you're a farmer. He did exempt farmers because he says, you know, sometimes Sunday's the best day to plant and the best day to harvest. And I don't want to like get in the way of the food supply. But other than that, stores and shops, they close on Sunday. And that was Constantine who did it. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time. I've reached a, a place where we're going to do the points for home. And it's a little, I've got five minutes to get them done. But I want to spend a moment to do them because I want to, I want to talk to you about uh, one of them in particular. First point for home. Earthly kingdoms come and go. You know, you look at those emperors, one after another, after another, after another. Earthly kingdoms come and go. But the kingdom of God, like the word of God, stands forever. And the nice thing about it is, I love our country, and it's a wonderful, Memorial Day is a wonderful time. But I sit there and I look at what goes on around the world, and I recognize that if our Lord tarries long enough, um, uh, the America of 50 years from now may not be the America we have today. Okay. Um, you know, there are some fundamental things just in the last few years that have shifted in our country. Um, 911, a major change in the way we perceive our country. I think a lot of people perceived us as a country that could, could, could have all the constitutional rights and freedoms and everything before 911. And after 911, there's a willingness by some folks to give up some of our freedom to make sure we don't have that problem. But in the process, it radically changes our, 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 our country in ways that we won't see maybe for another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But I do want to tell you this. I don't care what happens to America. Nothing will happen to the kingdom of God. And nothing will happen to the word of God and nothing will happen to his people. His kingdom's not geographical. It's us. Point number two. God doesn't rely on kings. He works through them. Romans 13, Paul says the authorities that exist have been established by God. But God doesn't need a king to get his purposes done. Kings don't dictate God's plans. Kings are pawns to God. In the chess game of God's kingdom, the king is a pawn. Because God works through kings. God raises them and God brings them down. There is not a government, there's not a ruler, and there's not an authority that has control over God. God has control over our world. Now, you can knock it down. You can look at it in a big Memorial Day governmental setting, but you can knock it down into something very small. There's not a person you work for there's not a person you know who is a big enough bully or who has enough control to where they can affect what God's plan for you is. 
the only person in this room who can affect God's plan for you and me is you and me. We have a choice in following him and we have a choice in doing what he wants or a choice in not. If I could teach my children anything right now and get it into their brains for them to grab a hold of, it's what I try and pray so hard to teach them, is that as you get older, and this is something Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling are finding out, as you get older, you get more responsibility and the decisions you make have bigger repercussions. When Rebecca or Sarah, our seven and eight year old, when they mess up playing with one of their toys or they make a bad decision or something, the consequences are really minimal. Oh, I mean the, the toy could like, the stuffed animal could lose its stuffing, but in the grand scheme of the world, that's okay. But as they get older, if Gracie or Rachel, our 15 and 17 year old, you know, they don't play with stuffed animals. They drive cars. And if you make a decision to drive a car recklessly, uh, without paying attention, uh, if you make a decision to do it while you've had something to drink, that that's, impairs your mind, the repercussions can be huge. Now you take that even further. You get into college. The choices you make in college, the choices you make for a spouse, what kind of parent you're going to be with your children. How, you, uh, how faithful are you in your marriage? What do you do with the money that you have and the resources you have? How do you live? As we get older and our responsibilities and our choices get bigger, the results and ramifications get bigger. And uh, uh, we just need to know that we can make a difference in what God's purpose is for us and how we live for God's purpose, but nobody else can. God takes care of us. Point for home three. Uh, watch out for the convenient Christian. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Now, we, you're Christians by your faith, but if you want to see someone who's a Christian, watch the way they live. That's what James says. Because you can't see the heart and the faith like God does. What you see are the works. And you'll be able to tell by the fruits. But watch out for the convenient Christian. And then the final point is, how are people going to see our lives? Because there is this big dispute over, was Constantine a Christian and when was he? Was that a conversion experience? Or was that merely God working? You know, there's... We're going to learn more about the life of Constantine, but I'm sitting there as I, and I'm reviewing books on him as I, as I prepared this lesson and so many questions about, was he a Christian? Was he the first Christian emperor? If so, when did he become one? And I thought, man, when I die, I hope no one looks, has to ha carry on a debate for 1,600 years about whether or not I was a Christian. I don't want people to debate whether or not I would loved and followed the Lord. I hope my life is one where there's no dispute. I mean, I want people to know. That's what I want for you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray your blessings on us in this class. I, I look back at how your hand has moved in history, and I, and I am in awe. I'm in awe that we're here today. And, and the things, the events that, that have brought us here today are... Uh, 
delightful to look at, but they're also uh, uh, wondrous. It's my prayer, Father, that you would touch the heart of everybody in here, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of station in life, and, and draw them close to you in a committed walk that, that leads them in the paths that you have set before them, the paths of green pastures, the, the paths of peace and joy, of full life, abundant life in Jesus Christ. That's my prayer in Jesus. I pray it. Amen.